All right. Good morning. Um, so two things. Uh, I, me and, and the band, we were in Germany last week playing. And I want to tell you something. Uh, I, we kind of, like, there's this picture I get, like, of the kingdom of God sometimes. And, like, it happens when we're there and, like, I see it. It's a whole bunch of Christians with their families um, having a, a, a worship festival on a defunct uh, Cold War Russian military base. So it's like, it's like the people of God dancing on the ashes of the Cold War. It's the kingdom of God. It's the future. It's great. I love it. It's perfect. So, um, uh, but there was, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. So um, while I was gone, we were going to have um, the district superintendent. He was going to come, but I wanted to be here when he came. So we had Aaron Ross come in last week. Um, if you're not familiar with, with, uh, with Watermark, if you haven't been around long, we're, we're members of a denomination uh, called the Christian Missionary Alliance. It's been around a long time, since the late... 19th century, um, started by A.B. Simpson, who was a pastor in New York City, um, who lost his job when he brought too many minorities uh, and people of color uh, from, and Italian immigrants and, and Irish immigrants in um, <clears throat> from, the, from the docks and bringing him into the church. And his church was very high and mighty and fancy, and he did not like all these outsiders coming into their church. And so he kind of lost his job, and that's how the CMA got started. He gathered them all together and set up in a big circle where everyone was equal. Um, they started sending missionaries. They started doing all kinds of incredible work and taking care of these people who were coming in from other countries who were, who were not prepared or equipped um, to like, start their lives over. And so it's, it comes out of a, a really beautiful moment in, uh, in church history, what I see. So A.B. Simpson was a great dude. Um, and I'm a, a delegate of the CMA as a pastor of a CMA church. And so every few years we vote on uh, new presidents and new district superintendents. And I promised myself I would not say district superintendo. I'm not going to do it. Um, district superintendents, and we, and, uh, and we vote on them. And so, so last year, we have a new district superintendent that was elected. His name is Tom Flanders. And, uh, and he's here today with us, and he's going to talk for a few minutes, and then we're going we're gonna to sing some more songs. And uh, I want you to listen to him and be gracious and, uh, and hear his story and, and hear his heart. Uh, it's good to know the people that, that we're working with and we're partnering with. The, the CMA does amazing work all around the world. Whenever tragedies and, are happening, they are present. They are there. Uh, being the, the faithful presence of Jesus in that place. And, uh, and, and we support a lot of the work they're do- that they're doing. So um, if you would uh, give a, a warm welcome and a, and a listening ear uh, to my friend Tom Flanders, who's going to come for a few minutes. Thanks, Tommy. Well, good morning, everyone. Well... I'm always better introduced when people don't say district superintendent, because um, it just doesn't sound right to me. But uh, what's most uh, encouraging to me, it, this is my first Sunday at Watermark, my wife leaned over to me, Chris, you can wave to everybody. Um, so she leaned over to me and she said, um, we're the old people here. <laughs> and um, that feels really good. That feels great. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about our story, but I want to tell you what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, Really, it's about the sovereignty of God. And, you know, as I'm sitting there thinking as we're singing these songs, especially that last song that talks about the journey of God's people throughout a time of ancient and even modern history, I'm thinking how the providence of God is always bracketed by the display of his power and the personal nature of his involvement with the circumstances of your life. 
It's never that God reveals himself without becoming intensely personal at some point along the way and also displaying his power. And where those converge, people are incredibly receptive to the God of heaven. Uh, And that's really what I want us to see here today in our talk. And so if you have a Bible, a device, whatever, and you want to go to where we're going to be in a few minutes, it's the book of Acts chapter 16. Tommy told me that you guys had been studying the book of Acts, so this is sort of timely, and hopefully I don't say anything contrary to what he said when he got to the 16th chapter of Acts. Um, But let me um, tell you a little bit of our story uh, first, because it's important whenever somebody unfamiliar shows up on the platform, like, who are they? You don't need to hear all of our story. But um, the providence of God uh, was something that became intensely personal for me as a senior in high school. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home, not, like, uh, not unlike a lot of people probably in my generation. Incredibly poor, small farming community in upstate New York. There were more cows than there were people in the town uh, where I lived. Uh, My mom was married and divorced four times before I got out of high school. And so it was just, as you can imagine, everything that you would ideally not want an upbringing to be. That's what it was. And because it was a small town, you had to drive somewhere to get work. And so that's what I did. I drove uh, about 12 miles over the hill or bummed a ride if I could. And I would um, go to school for as little as I had to. And then I would get out of school, early release. I'd work at McDonald's in the morning, hang around on the streets until I got to work at Pizza Hut in the evening. And uh, so those were my jobs. I planned after high school to do what everybody in my family did. I come from a large family on both my mother's and my father's side, five uncles on each side, two aunts on each side. So, you know, seven members of the family on either side. And so I just decided all of my uncles had enlisted in the military. Virtually all of them served in Vietnam. They all came back safely. I thought, well, that's probably the best bet I've got um, to sort of get out of this area and sort of make a way. And so I enlisted in the military. That's back when they still had something called the buddy system. I enlisted with my good friend, Mike DiStefano. And I was planning to go into the military. And uh, before I was to leave for boot camp, I'm working at McDonald's and I'm flipping burgers. And I look over and there's this really cute girl that's deep frying french fries. And at that point in life, I'm interested in just a couple of things. One, girls, um, motorcycles. If I wasn't going to make it in the military, I wanted to be a professional motocross racer. I was racing motocross. That's what I wanted to do. And so I tried to take my breaks uh, when that cute girl... Chris, was on her break, and um, we uh, just sort of, you know, got to know each other, and I mustered the courage to ask her to go out on a date, and so we went on a few dates, and um, we, were, we were just sort of getting to know each other over a period of months, and she was taking a break. She was home from college, and I didn't know that there was even a thing called a Bible college. I didn't even know there were things like Bible college where you can study theology, but she was going to one of these schools. I just thought, well, she's older than me, she's cute, and um, you know, I'll get to know her. And so we went on a few dates, and I'll never forget the day that uh, I was really starting to fall for her, and I went up to her parents' house, and we went for this long walk in the field, and we sat down by the creek, and I said to her, hey, I think that, you know, this is going well. And um, I really like you. 
I think you'll, you like me, and these are back in the days when you said corny things like, hey, do you want to go steady? You know? Um, and so whatever my words were, I asked her, and, and her response was crushing. Quite honestly, she said, um, really, I don't see a future for you and me. Now, we'll be married 37 years next year. So she was wrong. Um, but uh, I, I remember sitting there going, well, what do you do with that, right? I mean, I'm sitting there and I say, so why is that? And, and she, she said something that went almost like this. She said, because the most important thing in my life isn't the most important thing in your life. And I remember I said to her, well, what is it? It can be, just tell me. And... Um, she said, well, it's actually not a thing. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And um, I'm not telling you he has to be the most important thing in your person in your life, but he's the most important person in my life. And as hard as it would be to imagine, he's actually going to be kind of, if you were to rank it, he's, he's going to rank up there above everybody else, maybe even a husband in the future. And I was like, you're right. That's odd. That just sounds weird to me. You're probably a hyper-religious person. I came to find out her dad's a pastor and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? I was just taken with her. Well, she went back to college and um, I just thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the military and there's more than one fish in the sea, right? That's kind of the way it goes. But as she left, her dad started taking an interest in me. And her mom said, hey, I know you only got a few months left, but I got a full-time job I can offer to you for that period of time. Do you want it? I needed the job, so I took the job, and these folks just started taking an interest in me. And in September of 1984, just before I was leaving for boot camp, I had my final physical for the military, and I traveled to Syracuse, New York for my physical, and I promptly failed the physical, which was just devastating to me, to be honest with you, because I was a high school athlete, and I thought, well, I'm in good shape. Why did I fail the physical? But in the fourth grade, I was stung by four bees and spent four days in the hospital because I had such a bad allergic reaction. And they found that on my record, and they said, we could never promise you that you wouldn't be deployed someplace and that you wouldn't be stung by a bee and sort of die out there in the field, and we can't travel you know, with some allergy specialist everywhere. You're deployed, and so we're not going to let you in. Now, a lot of things have changed in the military. I think I could still get in today. I'm not sure. But um, I've been stung by lots of bees since that time. Had no allergic reaction whatsoever, but I didn't get in the military. I was crushed. But in September of 1984, the first week, Chris went back to college and her dad said to me, would you like to ride along? And I said, um, sure, because it's three more hours with Chris, but the prospect of being alone with you in the car for three hours uh, is a little daunting, but uh, to be with Chris, I said, yes. And, and he took her back to this small liberal arts college on the Hudson River in New York, just outside of New York City called Nyack College, the college that A.B. Simpson founded. And he, he, he dropped her off there and I said my goodbyes and you don't kiss her real long in front of her dad, none of that stuff. But, you know, we drove back. And I can only tell you this, on that three-hour ride, I initiated the conversation that I would never have imagined initiating with somebody. It was all about, you know, the things I'd, I'd heard Chris say and him say, and I started asking questions about Jesus in the Bible. And we got to the end of that long ride, and we pulled in the house where he was dropping me off. And as I said to you, my upbringing was a little different. I was going into an empty house. I mean, nobody's around. I really didn't have much of a family unit. At 16, I moved out of my house. I never went back ever again. And... He said to me, he said, Tom, you don't fully understand what's happening here, but the Holy Spirit actually is working in your mind and your heart right now in your life. 
and I want to know if you'd like to give your life to God. And I said, I think I would. And he said to me, well, then I want you to pray this prayer. And I said, out loud? And he goes, yeah, I think it's better if you pray it out loud. You don't have to, but he said, I can't pray this prayer for you. Are you the only person that can decide whether or not you're going to give your way to Jesus? And I fumbled my way through an awkward prayer. But I can tell you at that moment, I felt something I'd never felt before in my life. I knew that something had happened. The Holy Spirit had come into my life and that it changed the trajectory of my life from that point forward. I remember going to that empty house and the prevailing thought was this, I'm never gonna die. I'm never gonna die. I had a crippling fear of death and I knew I'm never going to die. I have eternal life. How that affirmation came to me in that moment so profoundly, I really don't know except for to say, when the spirit comes into your life, he sort of witnesses to things in your life, sometimes to the deep places of need and he brings reassurance to let you know he's there, he's with you. And now, almost 40 years later, I can tell you, he's still with me. And you know he's with you too. But experiences like that inside the providence of God have the ability to change your life, don't they? Here's the question that surfaces every once in a while for people of faith. You know, most of us are used to being presented this question. Listen, if God is powerful and he's good and loving, why is it that he allows difficult things to happen to good or seemingly innocent people? If you follow Jesus long enough, you realize that there's actually a question that follows that that's equally as profound. It's this one. Why is it that God, for whatever reason, in his infinite providence, would not allow good or even godly people motivated for all the right reasons to do the things that seem to make sense to them and others? Why does God insert himself into the circumstances of your life and exercise his providence in ways that you can be left with no other conclusion except for that you thought the answer was yes and amen. I'll go do this at this time over there. But God from heaven exercises his sovereignty, if you will, his dominion, his, his power and says no to your plans because apparently he has other plans. When's the last time you thought about doing something only to discover that God, for whatever reason, wouldn't allow you to do it? that he had inserted himself into the circumstances of your life in a way that, were so, that was so obvious and profound that you just have no other explanation, but that it was God. He got involved in the circumstances of my life. I mean, some of you probably are living here in this part of the world and you never imagined yourself living here. Chris and I moved here a year ago. Uh, in the midst of trying to buy a house when everybody else in the world was trying to buy a house in Florida and you couldn't afford them, right? After living 23 years just outside of Boston and before that in New York, the last place in the world we ever imagined ourselves living is Florida, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with Florida. It's just that, you know, we're like everybody else who doesn't live in Florida. We come here to go on vacation. But God in his providence interrupted our life in a way that we could never have expected. And to be totally honest to you, initially we resisted and then he made his way apparent. Well, here's what you need to know when you come to the 16th chapter of Acts. You've got the apostle Paul and a few of his closest friends, Silas, Luke, and a young sort of emerging leader, Timothy. 
and he's gathered them together and he sort of outlined a plan and they're traveling through the middle of this very large continental landmass that is modern day Turkey, then known as Phrygia. Paul is taking uh, in his lifetime three extended trips where basically this is his plan. I'm gonna stop at all the centers of commerce and culture and wherever there's an openness on the part of people to hear what I have to say about the person of Jesus, I'll stay there for a little while, tell them the gospel and if people respond, then what we'll do is we'll gather that group of people and we'll plant the church. I'll, I'll sort of develop them enough until they can continue to follow my teaching and the, and the ways of the Spirit and the words of Jesus. And then we'll have a church here and here and here. And it's a great plan and it makes sense because Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And, you know, sort of that citizenship card, it allows them entree into all the places that they could imagine traveling. And on this one particular trip, they've left Jerusalem. They're going up to this large uh, sort of land mass and they've got a plan that when they get to the top of it, they're going to turn left or sort of go west. And if God allows, they'll travel all the way to Spain and bring the gospel that far. And there's nothing that would forbid them from doing so because of their citizenship and because of the roadways that the Roman Empire has laid down in that part of the world. Shortly before COVID, Chris and I were in this part of the world. Those roadways are still there, as we all know. I mean, they're not smooth. You wouldn't take your Lexus over those roadways, but I mean, they're still there. And that was Paul's plan. There's only one problem with the plan. Well, it seems to make sense to his friends and associates and to everybody else. And to be totally honest with you, it makes sense to me. He gets to the place where they're going to make this turn, if you will. And God, for whatever reason, makes it apparent to them that he does not intend to cooperate with what they've sort of outlined going forward. Now, that's the sixth verse of Acts chapter 16. You can see it right there. So Paul and his companions, those fellows I'd mentioned by name, had traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, but now they're being kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So they're gonna uh, travel along the Aegean Sea through the province of Asia, maybe go to a place known as Troas, and then again, make their way as far west as they can. And when they get to the point where the turn is required of them, God just sort of speaks by the spirit and says, no, you can't go that way. Ever had that experience? Maybe you're right here right now at this time in your life, you're sort of stationed here and you have no explanation other than, than God has sort of worked it out that this is where you're supposed to be. Well, that's the experience that Paul has and he's at least wise enough to know that you don't push yourself in a direction that God is sort of making apparent he doesn't want you to go. Right? I mean, I don't know about you. I've, I've sort of said to God on occasion, listen, I know I can't sort of blow this door down, but I'm going to lean on it really, really hard so that you know this is what, what I want. Chris will tell you, I've always dreamed, I've said someday, you know what, Chris, do you think there's any chance someday we could go home again? Go home again to that small little area in upstate New York where the only two churches in the town where I grew up have long since closed. 
The schools have closed down. There's no industry left. I said, Chris, can you imagine if we could get that old abandoned school? Can you imagine if we could just resurrect hope inside that community in the hearts of people? And I've always said to God, you know, I'm willing. You just have to say it's a green light. But, you know, not yet. It just, it just hasn't been his leading. And so Paul knows, don't push yourself in a way. Now, what he knows is it makes no sense to go back the way they came. You cannot go in this direction. As you'll see in a little while, they're gonna sort of make a move, but they really can't go further west and north, if you will, because if they try to do that, they're gonna drown, literally. There's only one option that remains, it seems, one direction that makes sense and hasn't been blocked by God, and that's to turn right and to go east, if you will. And just about the time Paul says to his friends, a change of plans, would you like to do so? And everybody apparently agrees, uh, except for God, that is. Look at verse seven. Verse seven. So when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, you gotta pause for a moment and put yourself in their circumstances. Have you ever been at a place in life where you seem stuck in some circumstances that you don't fully understand and you don't even know how to explain really, but you know you're not supposed to go this way, back that way, over here or over there, and you find yourself right there. And if somebody were to ask you in that moment, hey, what are you doing hanging out here? If you were to be entirely honest, you'd probably have to say something like this, I really don't know. Everything I'm trying is not working out. And, and I tell you, I'm pushing myself in a direction as hard as I know to push, but for whatever reason, I'm getting no cooperation down here or from up there. And that's where Paul finds himself. And I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of his friends have whispered to themselves, do you think he really has any idea what we're supposed to be doing? And in that moment, Paul does what <laughs> might be the best thing to do. He goes to bed. Sometimes a nap is the answer, right? Amen. I mean, it just is, right? Sometimes a nap's the answer. And as he sleeps, he has the experience that the psalmist talks about. Every once in a while, God will speak to you in a way that is out of the ordinary because he realizes it may be the only way he can get your attention. And you would uh, sort of know unmistakably that's the voice of God. I've been following Jesus for 40 years. I would tell you this, I've fallen asleep and had a dream where I've woken up or been awakened maybe five times and said, that's from God. It doesn't happen all the time. I had a lot of dreams like you, I suspect, but maybe five times. Paul has a dream and in his dream, he looks across that vast body of water and there's someone on the other side who says, hey, how about you come over here and help us? And it's an area of the world that's little talked about in the Bible. We would call it modern day Europe. And Paul wakes in the morning, knows exactly where they're supposed to go, not precisely what it is they're to do when they arrive, but he says to his friends, book passage on the first ship that will take us over there. They do that. They have a couple of stops along the way, sensing no need to stay right there where they are. They move on until they finally land at a Roman colony known as Philippi. If you read the newer part of the Bible, you recognize it. It's the book of Philippians. Later, Paul will write an entire book in the New Testament back to this church at Philippi. 
He doesn't exactly know what he's supposed to do, but he's going to do what he's planned to do. Wherever there's commerce and culture, I'll pause there, find an audience of people, I'll tell them about Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And it's a day for worship. There's no synagogue. And when Jewish people in ancient times have no place to worship as far as a facility, a building, they often went to the water's edge. He does that. He goes to the water's edge. He runs into a woman there. She's a God-fearing person. Her name's Lydia. She sells high-end purple cloth. And he just starts telling her about Jesus. And amazingly, her heart is opened to Jesus and the hearts of all of her family members are open to Jesus. They receive the message that Paul has for them and they're all baptized and they become followers of Jesus. And I want to say, yay, God. If that's the result that I can expect, when you exercise providence in a way that messes with the circumstances of my life, then okay, you lead on. I need to see both the expression of your power, but also the personal nature of your involvement in these circumstances. It doesn't end there. Because there's resonance and people are responding, he gets people together in Lydia's house. He starts a small sort of group of people. It will result in an incredible church that I can tell you honestly, in some ways that you can see both historically and biblically, quite honestly, you're here today, at least in part, because a long time ago, four men were guided away from their own plans and thoughts and direction and led in another way altogether by the Spirit. Paul just says, okay, well, Silas, let's go preach in the marketplace. And he does. He goes out in the marketplace and people are responding. They're coming to Jesus. And there's a slave girl there. You know the story, perhaps. And she's owned by some people. She's also possessed by a demonic spirit. And by this spirit, she tells people the future. She's a fortune teller. And she even you know, sort of follows Paul and Silas around and says something like this. She says, you should listen to these, these men. They're telling you about the most high God and the way to be saved. And what she says is true, but when it becomes too great a distraction, Paul says, enough. He turns to her and he says, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And in a moment, she's delivered from that demonic spirit and she's set free. And one more time, I want to say, yay, God. If that's what I can expect when you insert yourself in ways that are providential into the circumstances of my life and take me into settings and with people I could never have imagined finding myself with, then you lead on. There's only one problem. Her owners have lost their revenue stream. <laughs> who wants to pay a fortune teller who can't tell you the future, right? And when they realize that they have no more money coming in from her, they accuse Paul and Silas of subverting Roman customs, something they hadn't done, have them dragged into the marketplace and beaten within an inch of their life and thrown into a Roman dungeon. I told you shortly before the pandemic, Chris and I were in this part of the world, we walked into an ancient Roman dungeon. Not this dungeon that they were chained in, but an ancient Roman dungeon. We could still look up in the wall and see the iron bar that had been driven into the side of that stone wall to hold the chains that would shackle prisoners at that time. Now, because it was a bit of a tourist stop, they'd cleaned it up nicely. It was nowhere near as rat-infested, as cold, and as dark as it would have been in the time of Paul and Silas. But it certainly wasn't pleasant. And so they throw Paul and Silas into this place. And there they are, 
chained, unjustly accused and arrested. For whatever reason, they haven't flashed their citizenship card. They haven't said to the authorities who've seized them, listen, you can't do this to us. You see this? We're Roman citizens. We should be afforded due process. And we have rights, you know, for whatever reason. I think I probably would have. But they don't. Instead, they're dragged off to that dungeon and they're left there until whoever decides their fate comes to some sort of conclusion as to what they'll do the next day. There's a guard that's posted and there are others who are in the dungeon with them probably for good reason. And the rest of the 16th chapter of Acts tells us the story of what happens here in this incredible moment where God's power is on display before humanity. We don't have time to read it this morning, but please, maybe you'll want to read it for yourself later today or another time. In my mind, it goes something like this. Silas, are you okay over there? Yeah, Paul, I'm okay. You're praying, right? I haven't stopped. Good, because you know he's in here with us, right? I know, Paul, I sense him here with us. I do too. Don't stop praying. I won't, but I'd like to do something else. What would you like to do, Silas? Our options are a bit limited here. I'd like to sing. Sing? Here, in the midst of our circumstances, you'd like to sing. Yes, I'd like to sing, and not just any old song. I'd like to sing his praise. And I don't know the song that they sing, but if it were a song we'd sing today, it'd probably be amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. But they sing their song to Jesus. And you know what begins to happen it catches everyone by surprise. The walls begin to move ever so slightly. And then the ground begins to shake ever so violently until finally it's shaking so violently that everyone's chains and shackles fall right off. And one more time, I want to say, yay, God. 
If that's what I can expect when you exercise providence and it messes with the circumstances of my life, then you lead on and I will follow. Even though admittedly on occasion, I would rather you allow me to set the course. The jailer realizes what's happened. It'll mean his head if one of them has escaped and what prisoners hang around once they've been set free. He calls for his sword. He's about to fall on it when Paul sees what might happen. He says to him, don't do it. We're all still here. He rushes in and instead of them falling before him the day before, he falls before them and asks this question, oh men of God, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells them what we still tell modern people. Listen, there's a personal God. He revealed himself in the person of Jesus. You've got to admit your deficiencies, your sinfulness, your depravity. You've got to say, listen, I'm imperfect, but he's perfect. And that's the solution to my imperfection, to my own depravity. You've got to sort of turn away from that way of living. And you've got to say, I trust you to save me, Jesus. And if you'll do that, you'll be saved. And he says, that's exactly what I need. He takes those guys home, wakes his family, sets them a meal, tends to their wound. His whole family comes to believe in Jesus and they too are baptized. One more time, I want to say, yay God. If that's what I can expect when sovereignty interrupts the circumstances of my life, then you lead on. (laughs) It's an incredible night. I don't know everybody who was in that dungeon. I suspect it wasn't just the jailer who was saved that night. I think there were probably a few prisoners as well. I can't wait to sort through the crowd of heaven and find them and say, were you there? So, so we read it, we believed it, we know what happened. Could, could, could you tell me more? My inquisitive mind wants to know how many of you were there? What were the songs that they sang that night? The next morning, the magistrates say to Paul and Silas, apparently you are men of God. They send message. We didn't realize you're Roman citizens. You should have been afforded due process. Do us a favor. Would you just leave town quietly? They probably offered him a little something as well. Paul says, we will leave, but not before going back to find Lydia. Because we haven't seen her since you seized us. They knock on the door. The Bible says that they went there to encourage Lydia. Parakaleo. It's a word that means sort of encouraged like this. You know, you tap somebody on the back and say, you'll be Okay. And then there's encouragement that's more exhorting where you hold somebody by the shoulders who's been shaken by the circumstances of life. You look them straight in the eye and you say, listen to me, you're going to be okay. God is with us. You are going to be okay. And I think that's what they do. Lydia opens the door. And again, in my mind, it goes something like this. Paul, Silas, you're alive. We've prayed all night for you. We didn't know if you'd made it through the hour. But here you are. Look at you. Some of us all night have been cowering here in fear. We thought if they would do this to you, they might do the same to us. 
We wondered how could a good and gracious and merciful God like you described allow this to happen to men like you who are good, godly people. And Paul and Silas might in that moment indulge that train of thought, but they've long since learned this, that perhaps the truest litmus test of your faith and mine is really how we handle hardship in life as well as it being our greatest opportunity for evangelism. And so I can hear Paul say to Lydia, Lydia, listen to me. Don't you remember how we told you we tried to go over here and then over there and we thought about even going back there, but we were brought right here, right to you at this very hour in the leading of God. And so he took us yesterday into that marketplace. He took us into that dungeon. He's taken us out this morning and here we are in his providence standing at your doorstep. Pray for us. Opposition awaits us wherever we go in the future. You stay strong too. One day you may have to wear the scars of your commitment to Jesus. But you stay strong, Lydia. Here's what you need to know. You can trace the spread of the gospel. (laughs) Not in the end, ultimately, just from Paul's three extended journeys where he travels throughout the known part of the world in his lifetime to tell people about Jesus. You can actually trace the spread of the gospel from the church at Philippi. From Philippi, the gospel does go to Spain. From Spain, the gospel goes to France. From France, the gospel goes to the UK. And one day, people begin boarding small, crude sailing vessels that you and I would never board. And they sail halfway around the globe and they come to the shores of a new America. And they bring with them, among other things, they bring with them the name Jesus. And they tell people there's hope for humanity. And the gospel has been circling the globe ever since. The earth and all that is in it belongs not merely to America. It belongs to the Lord, the psalmist said. And God has positioned us at a time in history where we have to be equally as committed as they were to saying, lead on, take me where you will because there's a purpose greater than the fulfillment of all my aspirations. And if that happens, (laughs) I know this, I know this, that at the end, when we're gathered together with a group of people far larger than we are here this morning, We're going to look around at everything that's happened in history and that culminates in eternity. And we're going to turn our head toward the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we're going to say, yay, God, your plan, your way. Between now and that moment, you get every opportunity to cooperate with him as his providence becomes apparent in the circumstances of your life. And I promise you this, if you do, you'll also see the display of his power in ways that are appropriate for his glory, the good of others, and it will bring great faith and encouragement to your heart. So trust him, follow him, let him lead, and have his way. Today, tomorrow, and every day you have between now and the time you're brought to his side or you see him in the sky. Father, thank you for the privilege of looking once again into the word of God. The story is true. 
It's verified on levels that are spiritual, relational, intellectual, social, and the expression of God's involvement with humanity in history leads us to times of great anticipation for eternity. Now, we know this, you are going to return to the earth. We know not the hour or the time, we know you do know these things now. We want to live in anticipation of a kingdom that lasts forever and is unsettled by all the things that unsettle planet Earth. Um, it gives us great confidence. You've taken that notion and you've set it inside the human heart. And for people of faith, it grows like a seed. And one day it will be like a harvester who comes and brings the harvest into the barn. And then one day it will be like a great gatekeeper who opens wide the way and says, come on in and see all that has been prepared for you. Now rest. That sustains, keeps, and inspires us to continue following you, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who contends with us and comforts us. Our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.